evening and welcome to Stand Out Podcast with Natalia Brzezinski. Tonight I'm recording live from Stadshuset, the city hall in Stockholm, having lots of nostalgia over, I think it was four Nobel Prize ceremonies I was really fortunate enough to attend here. Um, and tonight we're also celebrating excellence and we're talking about innovation and sustainability. And I'm so happy to be here actually because sustainability is is and was one of the strongest shared values between the US and Sweden. President Obama came to Sweden to learn about sustainability from the Swedes. And we were at KTH this morning for the H&M Conscious Foundation Global Change Awards in the same spot President Obama himself came about two years ago to focus on the great innovation happening in this country. And H&M itself has been something that has impressed me so much over the years. And I'm so happy to help communicate this story tonight. Tonight we're here, we're about to have dinner in the amazing golden room, the room where I've danced a few times with my husband at the Nobel ceremonies, uh, along with the royal families. And it was so cool to see Crown Princess Victoria here today, stunningly, beautifully pregnant, giving out the prize with grace, as she always does. We have such a cool group of people here, really the lights of Stockholm. Media, celebrities, actors, royalty, politicians, academics, really a collaborative community of creatives. And we'll be talking to them all tonight, or as many as possible. And our first guest tonight is someone I'm really excited about, an American, someone I followed as a young teenager watching MTV's House of Style, the fashion icon, entrepreneur, single mother, amazing, amazing Amber Valletta. There's this funny thing that we mentioned this morning at the H&M event about Swedes being reserved and not promoting themselves. And they say that you shouldn't stand out as a Swede. You should never like put yourself out there. And I realized after a few years that it was really hard on the Swedish women because to be, you know, a leader of any kind, you have to take a stand. You have to promote yourself in the office. You have to say, hey, I'm doing this and I'm good at it. And you're not supposed to do that in Swedish culture. So I called the podcast Stand Out. And every woman that I've been interviewing, and I interviewed Ariana Huffington, I believe Hillary Clinton will be on the podcast in the next month, which is really exciting. So I always ask them, how do you stand out? Mm -hmm. So Amber, how do you stand out? <laughs> do you think? I, I mean... I don't think about standing out, to be honest. I think about just whatever I do, doing my very best. And, um, you know, sometimes I don't succeed at being able to balance everything. Sometimes um, my work might suffer or sometimes my family life might suffer because you have to make sacrifices. Um, I mean, I've been away the last two weeks from my family. So that is in itself time for my, my family. Um, and I could use to be home right now. My yeah. son's in finals. So How old is he? He's 15. Wow. So, you, I mean, I don't know that you ever do it perfectly. Yeah. And I don't think it's my job to tell you how I stand out. I think my job is to just go and do the very best I can in whatever that I'm doing. And... Um, 
whether it's you know being an artist or being an activist mm. or a mother, my job is just to do the very best I can. And I communicate that in the world the way I live. But other than that, um, you know, I, I don't... Maybe I'm, I'm Swedish and I don't know it. <laughs> that I don't, I don't explains really why you're here. I don't really. Be, I believe that humility is a much mm. more beautiful quality than someone who's very um, look at me and narcissistic. I don't find that attractive at all. Absolutely, and I think that at least in the way I try to view standing out, it's more. Um, a confidence to take the leap and something and I think you are such I was so excited to talk to you because you know you've really been able to reinvent yourself and redefine yourself I a lot of the women I look up to like someone like Ariana Huffington you're mm-hmm. always she's redefining amazing. herself like changing yeah. you know at over 60 she's running like a digital tech company who well, would when think? we stop growing we we really you know defeat the purpose of living because life is about evolving it isn't about standing still and standing out <laughs> means you're evolving, right? Have you always mean, been that, like, fear, not, I guess fearless or... I mean, I definitely don't think I'm fearless. I would say I'm courageous, which means I have fear, but yeah. I do it anyway. Um, I, I mean, my mother is very strong. And, um, I, I saw very strong female role models growing up, so I think I'd attribute most of my um, inner confidence and strength from what I saw role model to me. My mom was single and she worked very hard and um, she struggled and, you know, she didn't lie about her struggle. She was both very honest about her, uh, you know, financial struggles and emotional struggles to be alone. But at the same time, she was very proud of the fact that she succeeded on her own. You know, she didn't go and marry someone That's that amazing. could take care of her. She did it on her own. So it is amazing. And I've, Absolutely. I've always been a woman who takes care of myself. I don't never counted on someone else to do it for me. So I don't believe that um, we need to like kind of come out and say we're better than men or doing this. Mm-hmm. It's just about finding our place in the world as women. And um, Would you call yourself a a feminist? I love women. Yeah. And, um, yes, I'm a feminist, but I'm not a feminist in a, probably in a radical way, because I believe that if we don't have great male leadership, um, raising boys to men, definitely, then we are going to be pretty angry women because in, in a whole society needs both, obviously. And, I think in some ways we're emasculating men a lot today, and there's no great male leadership teaching young men how to be how to be men, and we need more of that, so that we're not living in a chauvinistic society, or a masochistic society, or a machismo society. <laughs> that we're living in a more equal temperament, men and women. Um, but women are coming into their own, and I think in the next decade we are really going to see a huge power shift in all industries with women running companies to also the political system. Um, I totally agree with you. And I think it's interesting um, that you mentioned this aspect about men because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and someone said to me, you know, Natalia, you have to realize women can now be like men and women. You know, we can be feminine, but we've taken traditionally male roles while men's kind of roles have shrunk, you know, 
men still, you know, is it okay to be a nurse if you're a man? You know, it's yeah, where I mean, we have, so, so a lot of my friends with sons like you have, they, they do struggle a bit. So I'd love to hear, you know, how do you kind of raise your son? What kind of man? Well, I mean, it's hard. I'm a single parent, so it's definitely difficult because I have done 90% of my son's parenting. Yeah. So, um, and I'm not a man. I can't teach him to be a man. So I rely on, you know, other people and um, my boyfriend's a good man and, and he role models what it means to be a man. But I have to, you know, do the very best I can and try to teach him, you know, what I know as a woman, how we perceive men. But again, he has his own journey. I mean, I think gender identification and all of that stuff about jobs like well men can't be nurses because that's primarily female job and things like that I, I think we have to start forgetting about that kind of thing it's so ridiculous I know I, um, it's so stupid um, you know it's I think funny, we can all pretty much equally do the same job there might be some physical labor that w women can't do but all in all women are capable of doing the same job and, and vice versa men can do the same job so but I do think it's about raising men that are, and women, that we all, we have intrinsic qualities, male and female. And I don't want to be a man. I want to be a woman, and I want to be treated like a woman. So just because I want to go and have a high-powered job and make the same pay as you doesn't mean that I suddenly totally. want to open the door for you. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. I want to be able to sit down and have a, a political discussion at the same table but at the end of the day, there's certain things that I think make the opposites attract. And, and um, you know, I, I certainly still want to keep those things intact. I don't think we should strip that away from either gender. Absolutely. And I think that's, it sounds kind of basic, but it's just about not not having judgments, not being judgmental. Totally. And I, I mentioned totally. this nurse thing because my poor, I have an 18-year-old brother and he wants to be a nurse and his friends make fun of him. I mean, so part of it is I lived in, in Europe and in Nordic countries for a, most of my 20s in, in Copenhagen and then here. Mm -hmm. And America's definitely a bit more conservative, I think, still mm -hmm. when it comes to Absolutely. like the family, what the family should look like. Like, look at our political debates. I mean, you, we were having a great discussion this morning about... Mm -hmm. New Hampshire and the presidential debates. And I think some of it too is, you know, our politics and how we empower the family even. Totally. You know, we're a country that talks about family values, but we have no maternity leave. Like we don't really yeah. do anything. No, there's to a help lot of family. family value talk, but they also it's don't take care of the elderly. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Yes. I, I don't know. They don't take care of the healthcare system, you know. Uh, it, yeah, I mean America's built on puritanical beliefs and hasn't really modernized no. and so there's a lot of mixed messages you know there's one way it's okay to over sexualize a woman and then the next time you know next time it's inappropriate to see the body in a, in a way that's appropriate do you know what I mean Absolutely. it's like it's very confusing but you can have billboards of a woman selling sex online or you know at the strip club but you can't show a breast in a magazine to depict weird. A, yeah. an item yourself. It just—it's to me, it's very confusing, and uh, and America is very um, conservative in a lot of ways and very puritanical about their beliefs. And yes, there's a whole 
uh, idea that we have these strong family values, but again, we don't really take care of each other the way a family does. Absolutely. I th- As a whole. I'm hoping that we get Hillary on this podcast soon. So do you have any messages for her? Or would you want to convey something to her? Or what, what do you think? You know, I, many people probably don't realize how politically engaged you are and your family has been engaged in politics. You know, what are your thoughts about the rhetoric? Like... We've heard the word bimbo used by Donald Trump. I mean, mean, it's insulting. Talk about periods. It's really weird. It's really insulting the way uh, women are being portrayed by certain people in the political (laughs) system. Um, I mean, I think it'll hurt him in the long run. Um, I mean, I would like to see uh, Hillary come out with um, more warmth as a woman and embrace that part of herself that is so, you know, that, that connects on a level of being another mother, a working mom, a grandma. I think more of that is what I would love to feel from, from their campaign. And, um, but I'm certainly behind her. And I, um, I just th- don't believe we have room for kind of all the mudslinging and the separatism and things like that. I think it's creating more damage than, than good. That's... Super interesting you say that because I think that's something that I love about Europe is you can be a female leader, you can be a boss, a CEO, and you can also be feminine and you can yeah. wear a short skirt and a leather jacket. And yeah, I think we have so much to learn in the U.S. Yeah. and in Washington, D.C. especially yeah. Yeah. to allow that. And I think that's probably what Hillary faces a little bit. Like, how should I be? You yeah. know? And well, Michelle Obama brought a lot of um, she's glamour awesome. and beauty and femininity um, and strength. Absolutely. To the White House. I mean, I would be more scared of her than him, to be honest, <laughs> in an argument. You know what yes. I mean? Oh, yes. She, she to me, seems like she has the real... Um, She's tough and disciplined yeah. and smart as hell. Yeah. Such a great example for us that we have them. Yes. Amazing. You're, you're obviously someone that, that gives back. I mean, you were so passionate this morning. We're here for the H&M Conscious Award. We've been meeting amazing young innovators, and there's a big announcement today of who the winners are, but what drives you? Have you always been kind of really engaged civically and actively? Why are you doing this? You don't have to be. Well, my mom was an activist when I was a child. She um, stopped a nuclear power plant along with some other That's people. That's so cool. <laughs> Being built on some Indian land, American Indian land in, you know, I think just outside of the city where I grew up. Wow. And so I went with her to protests and and Obviously, I mean, as a child, when you're told you can yell as loud as you want (laughs) and you know you're yelling at some big corporation or establishment, you're very excited because you you know you might get in trouble. Um, So I saw my mom fight for, you know, the land that she loved and people's health. And um, and then I grew up every weekend going to my grandparents' farm in the country and playing with my cousins. So my my playroom was nature. I mean, we were outside all the time. Um, and, you know, they had a creek and there was animals and That's we so ran cool. from snakes and we caught crawdads and fish and played in, the, you know, played in the water and the fields. And that was how we grew up. So I had a love for nature from a very early age. And then I guess I'm probably part of the generation where the most 
you know, profound information came out about climate change. And in the last 25 years, we've just been inundated with information and technology that's changing. And I'm somebody who reads up on things. And I just was kind of following what was going on and realized it was hitting the fashion industry as well. And I didn't really know that in the beginning. Mm. I just kind of figured that out in the last five years or so. I mean, I knew obviously there was a lot of waste, but it's but just I been had coming no out really idea, now. Really, until I started researching how um, damaging the fashion in, in industry really is, the textile industry. It's the second largest polluter besides oil in the world. It's crazy. And we employ. I can't even remember the number, but it's like more than half the population yes. or something, the garment textile industry. So um, it just became really uh, it's something I couldn't avoid, knowing that I'm a part of an industry that has the potential to make huge changes in the environment, but also in the economic system globally. I just... To me, it makes my brain turn, and sometimes it's a bit overwhelming to think of all that we need to do and all that we can do, but at the same time, you know, coming to things like this, you see such innovation and you see the possibilities of solutions to these big problems. It's super exciting. And like I said this morning, fashion thrives on newness and creativity. And you know, they, they think of themselves as very modern, always thinking of the next great thing. And they need to think about the way they're doing business and designing because this is the next great thing. It is the way the industry is going to go anyway. So you can either jump on it now or, you know, go kicking and screaming. But this is where we're moving across all sectors of business. Thanks, Amber. I mean, I think if we move the dial ahead, it's because of people like you. And I'm not saying that to be flattering. I mean, I you have such a that, unique, but... strong voice, and you can connect with a dynamic array of people. It's great to hear it from the science community, and now I'm going to piss off all the scientists, but <laughs> it's really great to hear it from a cool, beautiful woman that speaks normally, and people can understand, and is passionate. So well, it's good. so cool that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank and you. now we're being summoned, so we're, we're, we're going to go mingle downstairs. Oh we have half of <laughs> Stockholm here in... And you have to check out this because this is where is the Nobel Prize beautiful. is held. So well, I've it's been very to auspicious, four. I yeah. think. Absolutely. Maybe eventually we'll give one we to like go. a fashion. Yeah, next year. Uh, fashion something, fashion innovation. That's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. It's possible. I'm going to feed that into the committee. I'm going to see them soon. Thanks, Amber. Thank you so much. Hey guys, we are back. I have my two American friends here. American. Americans yeah. from California. We have a super exciting evening, and I had the chance to catch up with both of you this morning at KTH and hear a little bit about the polyester digester. So please, if you could introduce yourselves and then... Tell me where your innovation, where was the first idea born? You know, were you on a run? Were you, you know, where did you come up with this? Yeah, so, okay, so I'm Akshay from Ambercycle. We're in San Francisco. Yeah, my name is uh, Moby Ahmad. I'm also with Ambercycle. So a little bit about the polyester digester. So we have a microbe that breaks polyester down into its raw materials. We can take those raw materials out and make new polyester from it. 
so the genesis of this really kind of, so what we found is that breakthrough technology doesn't happen in like a second. Uh, it's small incremental changes or work in lab and thinking over a longer time scale that lends to more, you know, the end of the breakthrough is really like, okay, we got here so far. It's a result of many, many different failures in, in different, uh, different ways. So, you know, we really care about sustainability and we're thinking of how we can solve this problem with polyester as a huge waste material and thought that microbes would be the best way to do it. That also was our specialty area. We're really good in that, we're scientists. So that kind of was the, the orig origin. I think it's so cool that H&M is doing this award. You know, I lived in Stockholm for a while and I really got to see and, and I got to know a lot of the H&M team well and they are so forward on sustainability, but no one really knew about it. And now with this award and the way they're reaching out, it's fantastic. And so I want to know, how did you first hear about the Global Change Award? What made you apply? Where did you see it? So we got tipped off by someone in our network who said, hey, you should apply for this thing. We looked into it and saw it to be very, very uh, fitting with what we thought would be a good uh, competition to enter. So we entered it and uh, got the good news a couple months later and are now here. have already benefited so much from the experience, made a lot of good connections and are uh, eager to take this vote of confidence uh, into the future uh, to get this scaled up. So how cocky were you guys? Did you think you'd win when you applied? You look cocky. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I look knew. cocky. But, yeah. um, no, I'd say I try, you know, I think we both, you know, try to keep our expectations low. That way we're never disappointed. And then when one of these, you know, awards come through, it just feels that much better, right? So I think going into it, it's more of, you know, you can't, you can't really believe that you're going to win it as much as you really think that it would be really fortunate if you did. What are you going to, what are you most excited about? There's kind of a year's worth of activities. We talked about a bit this morning, you know, you're going to Shanghai, you're going to be doing some interest. You did some speed dating this week. You've had, you've been in Stockholm for a few days now. Sure. Yeah. What are you excited about? Kind of, what are your impressions of Stockholm and like the team and the people that you've been meeting? Yeah. So I think Stockholm is a great city. It's and awesome. Everyone here is so incredibly nice and helpful. What do you guys? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great city. It's a great city. Lots of really attractive people. That's what people Definitely. always say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to come to that. I knew it. But, yeah. uh, but you know, and everyone at H and M, especially, has also been extremely willing to you know maybe go the extra mile to help us take this to the next level. And when we, we were talking to people at H&M, it was really clear that um, they had sort of um, the ability and the market insight to help guide our technological innovation and really push it into um, a more uh, commercial space. All right, we have an amazing dinner made by a local chef. Super awesome, we're starving, it's almost 10. Thank you guys, let's go have our first course. Thank you. Welcome guys, we're back. Things are now slowly degenerating in my podcast station. The white wine has broken out. So this may, this may be, it's about 10 p.m. now or 10.30. We've had our first course and I'm sitting here with Professor Rebecca Early, or Becky, which you're comfortable with. 
definitely comfortable with I that. I do like Professor, though. That's, yeah, that's you can pretty call cool. me Professor Becky if you like. And if you could <laughs> see her, she's this super cool-looking woman. So to have Professor, it's, it works. Own that. Stand Thank out. You. Yeah, yeah, I own it. I always ask, you know, I explained to you a little bit about the podcast, and so I always try to push people a little bit and, and um, kind of bring out their own confidence and say, how do you stand out? I think I know with you, but what do you think? How do I stand out? How do you stand out? out? Well, here in Sweden, it's been quite easy <laughs> because I'm just really, you know, pushy and outspoken. Have you and, always been uh, that way? Um, I think I've always been quite extrovert, yes, definitely. But I had to learn how to behave probably in, a, in an academic and in a professional <laughs> sure. way um, to, to make my voice heard. I think it's really something, you know, very bold and visionary that Carl Johan and the Parishon family and this foundation is doing. And I think it's quite unique. And I just would love to hear your reflections on how has this process been? You know, why did you say yes to do this? Mm. And how did they reach out to you when? Give us the full nitty gritty and yeah, the genesis. Yeah, sure. Because it's, it's been an absolute pleasure because I'm somebody who loves ideas and loves people um, and that's what this whole process has been about but uh, um, I suppose it started when I, I did a research project at H&M five years ago I've worked with them over the last um, while looking at how their designers can make better decisions in their day-to-day practices in their day-to-day lives even and um, I brought some strategies and some principles and some ideas and some warmth and some humor and some love and the rest of my team from London. And, um, and we developed a relationship and a whole lot of ideas. And uh, we then had to talk to the designers about how they can instill those ideas in everything they do. And change can come from within. So in a big company like H&M, the design process might actually be, be quite small. You know, then the ideas will get sent to the production office in Asia. And there are you know, a whole lot of other decisions will be made by a whole lot of other players. And so we needed to make them understand that their decisions were actually crucial for the impact that the clothes were going to have on the environment later on. What I found is I was working with many other companies at the beginning of this process in the States and in all across Europe. And I really found that H&M had a very advanced culture and very enlightened mindsets, a willingness to change and embrace new ideas and do something with it and to spend time talking with researchers and learn. You know, it was just very different to everywhere else I was going, okay? So I started to trust them and um, their intentions. And you have to remember that I would, being an academic, I've actually been criticized quite a lot for work spending my research hours working with H&M because they're seen sometimes as the bad guys you know and earlier today when we were doing the press conference journalist after journalist was saying how can you align sustainability with a company like H&M and actually it's it's fine for me it's a no-brainer now because what we need is every part of the industry to make a change. And as the many activists and um, impassioned people that I work with simply want H&M to disappear, to stop doing what they do and just sort of go. 
and um, I just understand it from a completely different perspective. This is a business, it's not going anywhere. Young people need clothes, they need to change. We have uh, a, a, um, emerging economies all over the globe with young people accessing the internet, seeing pop videos, uh, whatever it is, YouTube, and um, wanting to look fashionable, wanting to change that fashion. So. This is not a business that's in decline or is likely to go away. This is a business that's already uh, doing a lot of good for the emerging economies. And it has the potential to do great things by working with innovators, by working with researchers, by supporting entrepreneurs, and to being a real driving force for the circular economy. And this is probably the, what clinched the deal for me in terms of being a judge on the competition I believe in the circular economy. I believe in circular ideas. I believe that materials can be used well time and time and time again. I think that people want that to happen. Our grannies used to darn socks, you know. Nothing used to go to waste in the home. There were no bins. There were no dustbins because everything got used. Um, it's sort of part of our, our very being, this idea to... to use things well but in the last recent history relatively recent history we've been bombarded with fabulous temptations of color and sexy things and you know it's been difficult to resist and so we've actually developed some bad habits but I see that as a temporary thing I think we can still have change and pleasure and color but that those things can be recycled, reused, continue in everlasting circles, um, and that people will learn to value the goods because they know they're actually part of a bigger system. It's not just, that's my red jumper, it belongs to me, and when I finish with it, I'm dumping it in the bin. It's like, oh, I've got this red jumper for a while, you know, when I don't want to wear it anymore, um, I'm going to give it somewhere where the, the fibres will be recycled or I'm going to give it to that charity or that migrant community collection point. It'll be used for a while, then it'll be recycled. That's going to be part of our lives, this idea that we're sharing these goods on the story. earth. Yeah. And it has a story behind it. Yeah, so the competition uh, has been, for me, about supporting this new generation of entrepreneurs that are going to help us realize that vision. I can tell you're an excellent professor because I just had five questions swimming around in my brain <laughs> and you've touched them all. Oh, so wow. I'm going to let you kind of slowly matriculate back into okay. this amazing vegetarian meal and mm. we can have a cheers to our wine here, skull, as we say in Sweden. But before I let you go... Mm. I do want to pick your brain a little bit. What's something you want to know from perhaps one of my potential follow-up interviewees? We're interviewing all the winners, some interesting people in the audience, some CEOs today. So anything you want to know? Well, yeah, that's a tricky one. But I think it's actually something I'd like to ask your listeners. Um, last year, I gave up buying new clothes for a year. And um, I wrote about it on my blog and um, it was quite a profound experience. It kind of wasn't that difficult. Once I decided I was going to do it, I just stopped buying any new fashion, any new clothes, made do with what I had, mended a lot of stuff, borrowed a few things, had lots of conversations with people and 
my view on how clothes make me happy changed. And um, I'd like the viewers to have a go at that and see what changes for them. Because I have to say, when it came to January the 2nd, and I had been given Christmas presents of vouchers and various things, I went shopping and I bought myself a new pair of jeans. And I didn't want a second-hand pair of jeans. I didn't want to borrow a pair of jeans. I wanted a new pair. Because new is something to us emotionally. It's special. And I think by, ha by fasting, by not having fashion clothes for a year, my sense of enjoyment and pleasure around that single purchase was 20 times higher than had I just allowed myself to buy that six months before. And I think that it's a good little experiment to do. You'll save a bit of money, you'll learn how to darn, you'll, um, you'll, you'll make better friends and swap stuff, and then when you return to consuming new, you'll have a new value set. You are a rock star, that is cool. Okay. One year, I should challenge myself, and, and you hear that standout community, oh. write me on Instagram. If someone does it, I will think about matching it. Maybe I should. Oh, we'll see. Something's I'll hold being you born that. here. Yeah, okay. we're having a challenge. I shouldn't have asked you this because I, lo I, I love my stuff too. Well, we There's do. something we do. about it. You know, when I give a speech or, I don't know, my husband could care less what he wears or at least that's what he says. But if I have a big event or I'm hosting something, mm -hmm. if I don't like what I'm wearing, mm -hmm. it really affects me. I mean, it's silly, but yeah. you want to feel beautiful or confident. Yeah. And, and I think for that, women, it's yeah. so connected to the clothes to some extent it is it is and i think as long as that's balanced then then it's a beautiful thing and it, it it this is an industry that supports a lot of people feeds a lot of families um is extremely creative and expressive um but sometimes we we forget that we forget its value and we just we've gotten used to it we've gotten used to just having you know stuff all the time and i, I just want us to to still have it, but to, to sort of treat it more carefully. Thank you so much, Becky. Thank you too, that was great, thank you. Thank you. Hey guys, we are back, live podcasting from the City Hall. We have just had our fifth Feels Like Vegetarian course, which I know my friend here, Ellis, is not as happy about. And fourth glass of wine. We're Americans, we like meat, as we say, or you do. <laughs> I'm here with Ellis Rubenstein, fantastic friend. You and Joanna, your wife, are doing amazing things for Sweden and the U.S. and vice versa. Ellis is the president and CEO of the New York Academy of Sciences and is the esteemed, one of the esteemed jury members here as part of the H&M Conscious Global Change Awards. And Ellis, I wanted to start because I think one thing you said on stage today when we were presenting the awards was the term collective action. And I cite this because I think you and I both have this, you know, we're Americans, but we have close relationships in Sweden and we see that it's a really different culture, you know, where we're really competitive. I think this is a very flat society and it's quite collaborative. And I, th I want to just follow up on collective action, what you said, and how that can be used to move the dial on sustainability. And is collective action a Swedish thing? So three questions there for yeah, you that's to, to meld in. Well, so, you know, much as uh, I admire the socialist kind of view here in Sweden of let's all work together as a homogenous nation, and, <laughs> and they're very much that way. 
they have their own challenges about collective action. And just to give you an example, uh, their universities have only recently started to work together. In Stockholm here, you have three great universities, and they live in a zero-sum game, the same as we had for many years until our academy changed it in New York. And in fact, only I would say in the academic world, London and New York have really overcome the kind of uh, competitiveness that are, is holding universities back. But um, really to get to you know, your point relative to why I would even be involved as a science uh, person in a fashion event, uh, you know, what I had tried to convey at this event is that the grand challenges that we face in this world, whether they're, you know, poverty, eradication, disease, climate change, uh, we finally discovered in the last 15 years that we only solve them by coming together. And I mentioned uh, an example in the U.S. that's uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, many of us are frustrated and had given up almost on school reform. But in the city of Cincinnati, if people don't know it, there was an organization created called Strive that got every single sector of the society, meaning unions as well as the teachers, as well as the uh, administrators, as well as the parents, as well as Procter & Gamble and the other big companies of the city, to actually work together on analyzing every single school at key areas, third, sixth, ninth grade, and twelfth grade. And if they would see something not improving, they would set up SWAT teams that would go in and improve it. And this is collective action that is maybe, to me at least, the only hope in a world where we see such a disastrous situation in many countries. That maybe the reverse side of the disasters we read about in the paper is people coming together. And they come together across sectors. This is really a unique idea. It didn't exist, honestly, before 2000. It's created improvements in what we call the Millennium Development Goals to reduce poverty in the world and reduce malaria. And so that's my kind of hope. Thank you. No, I mean, I think that actually you are right. For all the talk about collaboration here, one thing I've seen that's very different than America is, is what you've described. Different sectors don't really work together. You know, government people stick in government, business people stick in business. And it's just starting to shift. That's why I think this award and what Carl Johan and H&M is doing is very bold, especially for Sweden. And I say that and, and kind of ask you, you've met the winners. And, you know, in addition to giving this grant money, the foundation's actually going to put a year of time into really mentoring and molding them, which I think is more valuable in the end than the money itself. What more can, can, can be done in this realm? And what kind of examples do you see in the U.S.? What could Sweden learn from us when it comes to mentorship or... So, Natalie, you, you, know, you raise a really great point about the fact that H&M didn't do what a lot of very uh, innovative companies have done, which is stop at, at the prize and think they've done their work. They're actually spending their own money on bringing mentorship to those young uh, scientists and engineers who might otherwise not be able to scale up their companies. But they actually went another step, which is they're creating a network so that the, even the non-winners actually can talk to each other and learn from each other. And this is really, to me, the exciting opportunity that the Internet of Things, we call it, actually it's Cisco's term, uh, but it's a, it's a revolution happening in the world. What does the Internet of Things allow? It it's allows us to come together across all geographies in collective action. And our version of it is actually 
one of the most proud things. We're 199 years old. We just had our 199th <laughs> birthday. But we're brand new. Why? Because we have young scientists down to the level of K through 12 kids that are getting involved at scale. And we could have never done this before Internet of Things. So we created two things that may be of interest to your audience. The Junior Academy for most gifted children in the world who otherwise could be isolated, who could give up on science. They might in many countries have no role models, no Nobel Prizes. They don't know that they could have a fabulous life if they stick with science or engineering. And then what we call Thousand Girls, Thousand Futures. And I particularly touch on Thousand Futures because there are two elements in this. One is many girls get intimidated by a male culture in science. We want to show them by giving them women mentors, professional engineers and, and, and scientists in academia and industry, that there is a great opportunity in their career. But, and here's the second thing, we don't care about whether they become a scientist or an engineer. If they do math and science, become really apt at technology, they could be great fashion designers. They could be great movie makers, photographers, because as I hope your audience knows, 70 plus percent of jobs in this current century are gonna require what we call STEM, or science, technology, engineering, math, education, not being happening in our schools. That's true. That's true. No, I think you've, I mean, it's a great way to wrap up here is, is it really is lying in between these sectors. So here today we're mixing tech and fashion and media and entertainment. And I think that's what's the special recipe now. So I'm really excited to see where these winners go. We'll have to follow up. Now we have a broccoli dish waiting for us somewhere in there, Ellis. All right, so well, thanks for the <laughs> Thank you so much. I'll see you in New York for sure. Okay, great. <laughs> thanks, Ellis. Bye now. clock has officially struck midnight and we are wrapping up what has been an incredible evening and an incredible day. The whole day was filled with various panels and events around celebrating these innovators. And I know I have come away with so many new thoughts and new perspectives and I've really learned a lot, especially from the group of winners which spanned various genders and age groups from the youngest winner being 21 to the oldest in his 50s and so it's been a really great way to open my eyes to a topic that I already feel in my heart and I think it's really interesting to think of um, Martin Luther King's words when he said Before each of us, the average Westerner and American, eats their breakfast, you've already relied on half the world. Sustainability is about the environment, but it's it's a human thing. It's about the heart. It's about people. You are what you eat, but you really are what you wear. I really believe 2016 will be the year that we've reached a tipping point when it comes to sustainability and fashion. And what this night has shown me is that all of us together can make an incredible change. One person can make a change, but when we come together in a community of collaborative creativity, I am sure we can erase or minimize the problem of waste in the future. So thank you so much for being with me on this really important night. And let's stand out for sustainability. This podcast is produced by ACAST with Sandra Moline as supervising producer and Carl Rosander as executive producer.